So what sets Christmas apart from any other holiday? America is really big on Christmas. We celebrate Christmas like none other holiday. Uh, some might say the food is special during the Christmas season. I'm not a big fan of Christmas cookies, and I personally believe that Thanksgiving has much better food than uh, Christmas. Some people might say it's the presents that make Christmas special, but you receive better presents on, on your birthday. Some people might say the decorations are really uh, great and and beautiful, but I think Halloween, as much as we don't celebrate Halloween here, people do go all out on Halloween to, to really basically turn their house into a haunted house. So it seems like there's not that many things that are unique about Christmas, but one thing that is true, in the Christmas season, there's always singing. There's always a melody that, that you tune into. I think singing is a very unique thing about Christmas. We don't sing on Independence Day, I don't, personally don't know a song about Thanksgiving, but you have so many songs about Christmas. Just a couple of days ago, I went to uh, my kids' uh, Christmas concert, and some of the songs that they sang, like, I didn't know they even exist. Every year, people are coming out with new albums, new songs about Christmas. So singing is just simply part of the Christmas season. But did you know that even in the Bible, in Luke 1 and 2, you have song after song about Christmas. That you have songs not, not are written by uh, just people, but are inspired by the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 1 and 2, you have the song of Mary, you have the song of Zechariah, you have the song of the angels, you have the song of Simeon. You have all these different songs that point to the beautiful reality of our Savior being born and how he is good news to us in our everyday life. So uh, in this Christmas season, for the next couple of Sundays, I simply want to explore and look at these different songs that we see in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And today we're going to look at the song of Zechariah. And the main idea of today's passage is this, God is a merciful God. God, he is a merciful God. And I say this for three reasons. I want to highlight three things from the text. God is a merciful God because he meets us in our brokenness. God is a merciful God because he meets us in our brokenness. Now, you might know uh, of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, but back in verse 5 of chapter 1, we are told uh, kind of the backstory of this couple. First of all, we are told that this is an incredible couple of faith. We see that Zechariah, he's a priest. He's a spiritual leader of Israel. He does service at the temple. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth, is not too bad herself. She comes from the line of Aaron. So two godly people, they come from this godly line, they are living lives together in marriage. But we also read in verse 6 that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. So it's not that they just have a title or they come from a good background, but the Bible says that their life was blameless before God, that they were walking in holiness. It doesn't mean they were sinless. Obviously, they had their flaws, but it does mean that in every aspect of their life, they were seeking to honor God. They were living according to God's word. Their, their deeds were righteous before God. So simply, you have a godly, faithful couple. This is a couple that you would expect to see in your church leadership. This is the type of couple that you want to get to know, that you want to be mentored by, that you want to embrace as your teacher, as your leaders. 
But yet we see one small problem. In verse 7, it says this. Although this couple was godly and good, it says Elizabeth was barren, and both Elizabeth and Zechariah were advanced in years. And so here you have a good, godly couple with a very real problem that they are struggling with an issue in their life. They are a godly couple, but they're a couple without a child. And I've been in ministry long enough to understand that this could be frustrating for married couples. Uh, so many married couples, they struggle with, with uh, having a child. We see that it gets really frustrating, especially when people start to pressure you. Like every holiday season, you go and see your family, and the question that they ask is, hey, when's, when's the kid coming? When are you planning to have kids? And every time, you have to come up with a reason. You can't tell them that, well, I'm, I'm trying, but it's just not happening. You, you, you wonder if something is wrong with you. Like you wonder if physically something is off about you. But the more and more you spend time in waiting and anticipating and, and you go through this cycle of disappointment, that question turns to God. Instead of asking what's wrong with me, you begin to ask what's wrong with God. You question God's goodness. You doubt his provision and his promises. And that's exactly what was happening in Elizabeth's life. We see that she was a godly woman, and yet because she did not have a child, especially in that culture, without having a child, you know, people were looked down upon, especially if you were a married couple uh, and you didn't have a child, people connected that with, you know, even being, you know, being out of God's favor. And people wondered, hey, something is off about that child. They must have some sort of hidden sin, and maybe, or maybe it's a generational sin that was passed down because a normal couple should have a child. That was kind of the, the way that people viewed uh, couples in the first century in Israel. But we know this is not true. We know that the reason why they are without a child is not because they are walking in sin. The Bible makes it very clear that, that they are walking in holiness. They, they were blameless before the Lord. And so... Personally, it, this um, encourages us to understand that not all suffering is connected with sin. Although there are certain suffering that we go through because of our sinful decisions, certain things in our life, when we struggle with the weight and the burden of life, we can't automatically connect that with our personal sin. This was a godly couple that was dealing with a real problem in life, and this issue was not directly related to their personal sin. But here's the good news. In the midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their disappointment, in the midst of them waiting and waiting and waiting, we see that it is actually God that shows up. God is merciful in a way that he meets us in our brokenness. When everyone else was avoiding them, when everyone else was judging them, when everyone else was looking down upon them, the Bible says that God looked upon this couple with favor. No, when someone is going through hardships, we feel bad about that person. No, we, we kind of, you know, we sympathize with that person. But what God does is he actually enters into that person's life, that he's willing to meet you in your brokenness. So God is merciful in a way that he meets us in our brokenness. Notice in verse 13, an angel appears, Gabriel appears to Zechariah, and he brings good news. He says that your prayer has been heard. This tells you that this couple has been praying for a child for quite some time. And, and it reminds you that God answers your prayers. And it says, your prayers have been heard. 
your wife will bear you a son. It's not just going to be any son, but this son will be great before the Lord. You're going to name this son John, and he will bring great uh, gladness to your heart, and many will rejoice at his birth. And sure enough, we see in today's passage that Elizabeth, that she gives birth to this child back in verse 25 when she first finds out that she's pregnant. It actually says that Elizabeth said to the Lord, the Lord looked on me to take away my reproach, which means to take away my shame. You can tell how much she was dealing with guilt and shame as, as a woman, as a godly woman. She was wondering what was off about her. And yet, what was revealed to her was that God was just simply working in the midst of her waiting. But we see in today's passage in verse 57 and 58, it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Exactly what the angel said, that this, this act of God's mercy would not only provide great joy to the couple, but it provide great rejoicing to those who are with this couple. So the Lord is close to the broken. It's quite encouraging to see this in the opening chapters of Luke because you would expect, hey, the good news is given to the godly, the righteous, those who are without problems. And yet you see that God is willing to work in the lives of the broken, the lives who are neglected, the lives who are disappointed, the lives who are wondering what in the world is going on with my life. We see that God releases his, unleashes his great mercy to lead them to great joy. So we see that there's this incredible moment in this couple's life. And I think the same is true with our lives. Maybe for some of you, it's not an issue of having a child. Maybe you are waiting for the right person to marry. And it's been really difficult for you. Maybe you've been waiting for the right opportunity in your career. Maybe for some of you, you've been struggling in your relationship with your family, maybe your parents, your children, and you've been waiting for the right moment to, to find restoration and redemption. Maybe for some of you, it's your struggles with health. Maybe for some of you, it's that you've been praying for a loved one, for them to understand the gospel and to believe in Jesus, whatever it might be. I think every single one of us could tell others that at one point in our life that we were disappointed by God that we wondered what is wrong with us and then that question turned into what is wrong with God. But in the midst of our disappointment, we see that God, he's willing to work in our lives in a way that he gives us mercy and meets us in our brokenness. So God is merciful in a way that he meets us in our brokenness. Number two, God is merciful in a way that he continues to work despite our failures. God is a merciful God because he works in our lives despite our our failures. Now, Zechariah, when he hears the news from angel Gabriel that he's going to have a son, I just love his response. It says in verse 18, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah understands that biologically, scientifically, it is impossible at this point in their life for them to have a child. That this is impossible for them. And he says, how shall I know this? Now, he understands that this is an angel from the Lord. He understands that this is a God moment. But you see that his disappointment is so great, that, that his doubting is so deep, that even with an angel right in front of his face, he's willing to say that I have no idea how this is going to work out. I am old and my wife is advanced in age. Zechariah Although he hears this incredible news of God 
willing to give this promised child, he doesn't believe it. He thinks it's a crazy, crazy idea to believe that his, his wife could have a child at this point. And as a result, what happens is the Lord, he prevents Zechariah from speaking the next nine months. So, so we see that as a result of his unbelief that Zechariah is unable to speak. And I don't know about you, but like if I was Zechariah, I would be even more mad, right? Because it's one thing to wait on a child for nine months. Like, I can't speak. I can't communicate. Like, how much more do you have to torture me, God? How much more do you have to, uh, to, to allow suffering in my life in a way that, that I have to endure over and over again? But notice that, that God, this was, for God, this was an invitation for Zechariah to believe. That God was giving Zechariah a second chance before he walks away from the faith. He was doing something supernaturally, not just physically in Zechariah's body, but in the heart of Zechariah. We see in verse 59, on the eighth day after John, John was born, the child was born, everyone is gathered and they're like, okay, this kid, his name is going to be Zechariah. Because back in, in first century Israel, and we do this sometimes as well, uh, sometimes if we want to honor a family member, we would name our child after the father or the grandfather. Even for me, uh, my name in Korean is Minju, uh, and uh, my son's Korean name is Min. And so that Min Min, that's a Min that I implemented in his, in his name. It's it kind of, I given him a piece of my name and in a way to honor myself. Uh, but I... It, that's something that we do. Sometimes when we call junior, like, you know, someone junior, it's a way that we would recognize uh, that family member. So everyone is expecting this kid, his, he's going to be named after Zechariah because Zechariah was a good priest. But notice that when people were talking about this, Elizabeth, he, she stands up and she says, no, the kid's name is going to be John, which means God is gracious. God is gracious. And so everyone is puzzled. There's, there's no one in your family or among your relatives who has the name John. Like, that's such a random name. And so people turn to Zechariah. Zechariah at this point can't speak. So they're trying to communicate to Zechariah. So what, what's, what are you going to name the child then? It says in verse 63, And he asked for a writing tablet, not an iPad, but most likely a wooden uh, thing that was covered with wax. And he writes, His name is John. His name is John. It's not a suggestion. He says, well, it's a done deal. The Lord named his, him John, so he's going to be John. It says in verse 64, And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loose, and he spoke, Blessing God. This is quite incredible because for nine months, this guy wasn't able to speak. And the moment he's able to speak because his experience, because the, his, he has this overwhelming sense of God's mercy and his grace in his life, he begins to bless the Lord. He sings praises to God. And of all the great things that happened in his life. So God is merciful. He's merciful in a way that he gives us another chance. He, he works in the midst of our failures. You know, some people, if you fail, they would ignore you. They would move on and go to the next person, but not God. Although you fail before him, God, time and time again, he's looking for every opportunity to restore you, to bring you back to him. And so we see that suffering can produce two results. It can produce bitterness or it can produce something better. It can create bitterness in your heart or it can make you a better believer. And that's exactly what happened for Zechariah. In his waiting for a child, he became very, very bitter. 
But in his waiting the past nine months, as he was waiting for the delivery of this child, instead of becoming bitter, Zechariah walked in belief that he became, had a better understanding, a deeper understanding of God's love and his mercy and his grace and the response to this, that, that he's over, overwhelmed with joy, that he's walking in obedience. This time around, he's not even questioning God's decision. He says, this kid, his name is going to be John. So we see that God is willing to work in the midst of our failures, that he's working in the midst of us coming short. Um, and, and, and we see, lastly, in this text, Although God is merciful in a way that he meets us in our brokenness, he works in our failures, ultimately God is a merciful God because he saves us through his son. Because he saves us through his son. Look at verse 67. It says this, And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, And so Zechariah is filled with the very Spirit of God. And he's singing a song now. Like he's so overwhelmed with joy that he, he creates a song. And uh, it's often called the Benedictus because the first word in the Latin Bible is blessed, Benedictus. And so we often call this song Benedictus. But notice in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now, if I was writing a song after uh, Timothy or Irene was born, I would talk about how amazing my wife was when it comes to her, her, her doing the delivery, how amazing the doctors were, how awesome it was to hear the first cry of my baby, and, and how beautiful these kids were. Well, they weren't that beautiful to, in reality. They're beautiful in my heart. When I saw them, I was like, okay, what is this thing? Uh, but, but notice in this song, there's not much about the birth. There's not even much information about the loosening of the tongue how God opened the mouth of Zechariah after nine months. This song is about Jesus. This song is about a Savior that is coming. It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And instead of going on and on again, bragging about his, his miracle child, bragging about how he experienced the supernatural miracle, how he was mute for nine months and now he's able to speak, instead of bragging on how the husband and wife was able to agree on a name, like, he's not bragging about those things. He's blessing the Lord, and he's saying, praise God for all this. In verse 68, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So the reason why he's giving praise is not because his personal encounter with God, which played a part, but now he sees the bigger picture. God has visited and redeemed his people in verse 69, and he has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, the horn is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of strength. That's why in the book of Revelation, when the Bible is describing the dragon, the beast, uh, you see all these horns, imagery of horns, because horns are meant to be a symbol of power. When you see an ox with horns, you're not thinking, okay, that ox is, is kind and gentle. No, an ox with horns, you don't mess around with those horns. God's salvation is, is displayed in power and strength in Jesus Christ. He is the horn of salvation. And as, as Zechariah is singing this song, he points to all these different Old Testament allusions and passages. First, he goes to David. He says, well, this horn of salvation is given to us through the house of his servant David. And this is alluding back to, to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promised David from your line, from your offspring will be a king who establishes an everlasting kingdom. That's not Solomon. 
that's pointing to Jesus. This person, this offspring will be like a son to me. And so God promised David from his line will come an everlasting king. And we see in verse 70, it's not just King David, but all the holy prophets of old spoke about a Messiah, spoke about this figure who would free the people of Israel, free God's people from those who are oppressing um, the, the nation. And we see in verse 72 that this promise was a sign of mercy for the ancestors. In verse 73, he even connects uh, this promise all the way to Abraham, saying that this is the oath that God swore to our father Abraham. What is that oath? Well, in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And as I bless you, you are going to be a blessing for the nations. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing for others. So he's connecting all these different dots from the Old Testament. He's seeing that, okay, these are not just random stories in the Bible, but it's just one gigantic story how God is about people, how God is in the business of saving people. And so he's connecting these dots. Everything is clicking. Everything is making sense. And I think for salvation to take place in our hearts, things have to click. The dots have to be connected. That you have to understand that God is not just working in your personal life, but he has a greater plan of salvation and you are simply part of his greater story. And so why did he show this great mercy to his people? It says in verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he granted us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is alluding back to Exodus when the people of God were oppressed under the rule of Pharaoh, under the rule of Egypt, and God delivered them, saved them, not so that they can just live life on their own, but they can be set apart as God's holy people. I think one mistake that we often make when it comes to our understanding of salvation is this, that now we are saved, we have a ticket to heaven in Jesus Christ, therefore we can mess up in our lives, that we can live life in a way that we don't have to care about the way of God, we don't care about the word of God. All we have to do is at the end of the day ask for forgiveness and God is going to continue to to understand who we are and understand our, our shortcomings. Well, the Bible tells us that God gives us freedom but we are to use that freedom to obey God freely. So the difference is not the obedience part. The difference is the motivation. The people of God, they obeyed Pharaoh, but out of fear. The people of God, after they left Egypt, obeyed God, now, not out of fear, but out of love. And that's what God is desiring. He, he wants to change the motivation of our heart. He wants us to understand that obedience is not driven by fear. It's not because you're afraid that God is going to strike you with lightning, but you're driven by love because the mercy that you have received in Jesus Christ is so great that you can sing songs of praise, you can walk in obedience, you can pursue holiness and righteousness, and then the attention shifts to John the Baptist. Finally, in verse 76, a mentioning of John the Baptist, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in forgiveness of their sins. So so he doesn't talk much about the miracle, miracle that took place of the giving of this child. Instead, he says, the reason why this this life is so your life is gonna be so great is because your life is gonna point to a greater person, Jesus Christ. That that's the purpose of your life. You're gonna prepare the way of the Lord. Now, I've been to many weddings, and there are some weddings where you have the best man 
who's trying to outdo the, the, the groom. And that, that's a terrible wedding, right? Like when, when uh, and they tell you when you're going to a wedding, make sure you don't overly dress yourself, dress up because on that day, we should celebrate the bride and the groom. The Bible tells us that John the Baptist is, is, is not the groom, he's the best man. In John 3, he actually says this to people, that his ultimate goal is to make the groom shine. His ultimate goal is to bring attention to the married couple. And his purpose in life is found in his relationship with Jesus Christ. We see in verse 77, uh, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I think I'm a pretty brave person. Uh, like, I can handle myself pretty well, and, and I try to kind of act, especially in front, of, in front of people that I don't have much fear. I'm actually personally not afraid of heights. But one thing that, even for me, I'm afraid of it is the dark. Like, and you might say, like, you're not afraid of the dark. I just want to encourage you to go into the woods by yourself, like, when it's dark at night. Sometimes when you go camping, you want to wander a little bit. And the moment you hear something, like this weird noise, like, you can't see anything. It scares you, right? You're afraid. Uh, you don't know what to do. Uh, and you might think that's silly because a lot of times when we visit the woods, it's not when it's dark. It's when it's bright. There's a big difference when things are bright and when things are dark. What the Bible tells us is this. Without Jesus, we are basically in the middle of the woods by ourselves, in the midst of darkness, surrounded by danger. And on a daily basis, on a moment-to-moment basis that we are living in fear, not knowing our next step, and we have no idea what to do. In that moment, the best thing that can happen in your life is for the sun to rise. When the sun rises, not only do you feel the warmth of the sun, but it brings clarity to every aspect of your life. That's exactly what Jesus does in our lives. Not only does it bring warmth to our lives, the tender mercy of God melts our hearts, but the other thing that it does, it brings clarity in the midst of confusion, that now you're able to understand what your life is all about. Now you're able to understand what you need to do in your life. So Jesus is good news because he is the sunrise. That the Bible tells us that this world, although it's pretty dark, it feels like you're in the middle of the woods and you have all these problems in your life. The Bible reminds you that the sun is coming. Not just the S-O-N, but the S-U-N. The sun is coming in the promised son, Jesus Christ. And so God, he is merciful in a way that he meets us in our brokenness. He's merciful in a way that he continues to work in despite of our failures. He's merciful in a way that he provides salvation to us through his son. And so when we read a passage like this, although we might think that this is an incredible story of a godly couple, this is a story that points to a greater story. The crazy thing about this story is this. I would say that Zachariah and Elizabeth, they actually, I feel like they deserved this son. Like they waited and waited. You understand how, how faithful they have been. Even all those years, they've been waiting for this child and yet Zachariah was still working at the temple. Elizabeth was still praying and waiting. And so you might say, well, this is, this is to some degree deserving. But the crazy thing about this story is this. Our story, when it comes to Jesus Christ, the mercy that God's shown in our lives was not deserving. It, it, not one bit. 
that out of his sheer grace and his mercy, God decided to make a difference in our lives. When we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's not just working in people who are living righteous lives, but he's willing to work in lives that are broken, that are shattered. And he says, I'm going to redeem my people just like I have redeemed Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, when you play ball, a lot of times when you um, don't make a shot or maybe someone blocked you, you always say, I'm going to redeem myself by, by, by dunking on someone else's fate. But we, we, I can't dunk, so maybe like hitting a good shot someone else's fate. Uh, maybe sometimes when you're working, uh, if you failed in your presentation, the next presentation you say, I'm going to redeem myself. Same could be true about an exam. Our culture tells us that we can redeem ourselves, that we can restore ourselves. The Bible tells us when it comes to the issue of sin, we have no chance to redeem ourselves. Yet, the good news is that God is willing to redeem us, to restore us, to invite us to his presence. So in this Christmas season, instead of just focusing on the blessings of life, well, those are worthy of praise, those are worthy of our attention. The bigger gift is this, that despite the highs and lows, the the ups and downs of life, we have this ultimate gift in Jesus Christ that reminds us that God can be trusted, that he is merciful, that we can trust in him and wait on him, and he will soon deliver and return and make all things right. And this brings joy and gladness and celebration to our hearts. So in this Christmas season, instead of growing in our bitterness, bitterness, let's grow deeper in our understanding of the Lord and celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.